This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Hello and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. Hey, Chris, it's good to be with you. You know, I feel like I start every episode by saying I'm, I'm excited about this episode, and and, and I am, but I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to say that. naturally an excited guy. How's that? <laughs> Instead, I, I want to do something a little bit different to kick Uh-oh. this one off, all right? So I'm going to read two quotes to sort of set the stage for, for today's episode. All Love right, it. so here we go. Quote number one. There is much to say about the relationship between the government and the private sector. Indeed, volumes have been written over centuries that speak to the question. For now, let me just say this. I am concerned that the appropriate balance is not being struck when it comes to the regulation of our financial system. The extent to which the recent wave of federal government regulation already has displaced and distorted private sector decision-making in our financial markets is disquieting. And I remain troubled that future regulatory initiatives will go too far, unduly burdening the financial system at the expense of economic growth. End quote. All right, I've got one more for you, Chris. These are good. Hopefully equally as ominous. (laughs) Right. All right, here we go. Quote, in considering the shape of things to come, the theme that focuses this conference, one thing is certain. The regime regulating our financial markets is undergoing dramatic change. Without question... There is a fundamental role for government, including the SEC, in regulating our financial markets and our economy more generally. And we need a regulatory framework that is resilient and that fits our increasingly interconnected and complex financial system. The key question, therefore, is not whether we will or should have regulation. The answer to that question is straightforward. We will, and we should. The real question is, how much? End quote. All right. Chris, can you put a date range on on those quotes? I mean, you know, if you would have asked me maybe 84 episodes ago, Kurt, I would say that they are both very recent. But what I've learned from a lot of these Insecurities Podcast episodes is that history may not repeat itself, but it might rhyme. So I'm going (laughs) to say, I don't know, let's say 2008-ish and in 2021 or 22-ish. How'd I do? <laughs> I mean, you covered quite a range. I'll say I they know. both they both fall within <laughs> within okay, that good. range. Okay, good. Yes, yeah, so, right. you know, you go you go longer to make sure you cover it. All right. So first things first, they were both quotes from today's guest who we're very mm-hmm. fortunate to have on the show. That is former SEC Commissioner Troy Paredes. The first quote comes from his remarks at the Security Traders Association 77th Annual Conference and Business Meeting. And we've obviously had some folks from the STA here on the show. That was back in September 2010. Ooh. And the second quote was from his remarks at Society of Corporate Secretaries and Governance Professionals 66th National Conference, and that was in July 2012. I mean, I have to say, in preparing for the episode today and going back and reading some of the commissioner's remarks and speeches, I was really kind of, I won't say surprised, but Mm -hmm. struck maybe by just 
how poignant those remarks are, right? They're yeah. still relevant today. We're talking about these things. We're having this conversation on a lot of our episodes. So kind of wanted to start doing something a little different. And You uh, wanted to start the, with me being yeah. wrong, Kurt. That's how we usually do it. So I'm glad, well, it, you know, glad to knock that out. You usually point out when I'm wrong. So <laughs> anyway, I've said too much already. Chris, why don't you, for anyone who doesn't know him, which is no one who's listening right now, but why don't I'd you imagine. give us a quick bio for the commissioner? <laughs> Happy to. From 2008 until 2013, Troy Paredes was a commissioner of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. At the SEC, Troy was a strong advocate for small business, for facilitating capital formation, for solving the information overload problem of securities law, and for cost-benefit analysis in rulemaking. After leaving the commission, Troy founded Paredes Strategies, a consulting firm focusing on financial regulation, compliance, risk management, governance, and regulatory strategy. Troy also serves as an expert witness and advisor in regulatory enforcement investigations and in private litigation involving securities and corporate law. And he brings his academic, government, and private sector experience to bear as an independent compliance consultant and corporate monitor. Troy is also a member of various boards of directors and advisory boards. Before joining the commission, Troy was a professor of law at Washington University in St. Louis. He also has been a distinguished scholar in residence at NYU School of Law, a distinguished policy fellow and lecturer at the University of Pennsylvania Law School, and a lecturer on law at Harvard Law School. Troy is the author of numerous academic articles and is co-author of a multi-volume securities regulation treatise with Lewis Loss and Joel Seligman. Troy is also an avid podcaster and the co-host of Appetite for Disruption, the business and regulation of fintech, a podcast focusing on opportunities and challenges at the intersection of technology and financial service with more than 100 episodes and counting. Kurt, we've got to try to catch him. Uh, Troy, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today and welcome to Insecurities. Hey, it's great to be with you. And it, it's a little humbling to have one, <laughs> one's words read back to you, but thank you for the uh, reminiscences there. And it's great to, great to chat with you both today. Yeah, we're excited to have you. And, and I can't promise that that will be the last time we, we read some of your words. Yeah, we need to be you, throwing but... your own words back at you a lot today. <laughs> well, at least but, I recognize them, right? So that's right. Yeah. You knew who it was and what time I frame knew who it was. was. You know, we've played this game with some folks before who didn't recognize some of their <laughs> that's own right. quotes. So, I'm glad, <laughs> so far, you're acing the test. We've got a lot of ground to cover today. We're going to talk about rulemaking and policy, enforcement, ESG, the role of the administrative state. And if there's time, peek around the corner a little bit to see what might be coming down the road in, in 2024 and beyond. But let's start with a little bit of a conversation around rulemaking and policy in 2023. The commission recently released its fall 2022 Reg Flex agenda, through which Chair Gensler set the agency's policy agenda and gave us a glimpse at what they intend to prioritize over the next year or so. It's a long list. There are 52 items on the agenda. 23 of them are at the proposed rulemaking stage. 29 are at the final rulemaking stage. And they cover the waterfront. There's corporate board diversity disclosures and human capital management disclosures. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. Amendments to Reg D changes to the definition of accredited investors. There's changes to Rule 10b-5-1, climate change disclosures, cybersecurity risk disclosures. There's amendments to Form PF. It, it sort of goes on and on and on. I think we've called it robust on this podcast in the past, which maybe understates things a little bit. I guess, you know, Troy, our question for you, or our first question for you is, how is the commission or how are the commissioners going to 
prioritize the things on this long list? And what's even achievable? Well, I think on the question of how are the commissioners, and I'm just going to pick up on the plural there, I think if there yeah. were different commissioners, I think you'd have different <laughs> answers to that question, different views as to what should be on the agenda and then how, how to prioritize within, within the agenda. But you, the list you just walked through, and, and, and that's not even the totality, of course, of everything. And, and frankly, it's not just rulemakings that's going on, as, as you know, and your listeners know at the SEC. You think about everything else the commission does, examinations, inspections, enforcement, and the like. It's, a, it's an enormous agenda for the commission over the last year or two and the plans under Chair Gensler as a leadership going forward. In terms of how you get all that done, is it achievable, how you prioritize? At, at some level, the answer is simple to part of it, which is the chair will ultimately drive the agenda in terms of the order in which these items are taken up and in terms of the, the time according to which they're, they're taken up. I think the more interesting piece of it though, as compared to, if you will, the processy kind of aspect of it, is the achievability of it all. Because setting aside one's view as to what the commission ought to do or ought not to be doing by way of by way of what it has on its on its plate, there is just the practicalities of how do you get whatever it is done? You know, whether you have 52 items or you have 22 items or you have 12 items, there is the question of, all right, well, you got these items, now, now what are you gonna do? And in some sense, it comes to, <laughs> I will say what you quote in terms of, okay, well, how are you going to regulate? And one of the things that really struck home for me in a way that I hadn't fully appreciated prior to getting at the commission myself is that it's one thing to have a philosophy, a view, an overall perspective on the federal securities laws or any body of law or anything else for that matter. It's another thing to take that and then translate it into a policy choice. It's another thing to take that and translate it into a rule. Those are very different things. And one practical challenge is even when you decide your policy direction and what topic-wise, if you will, policy-wise you want to prioritize, then you get to the real nitty-gritty of, all right, well, what do we want to do in terms of the particularities of the rules? And even when you make that decision about what you want to do when it comes to the rules, you actually have to then figure out how you're going to operationalize those choices. Rule writing itself, even when you get to the point of, I know what I want the rule to do, rule writing itself is not an easy thing to do. And so that entire process takes time, takes energy, takes effort, but it also needs to be built on the analysis. And you come back to, as you mentioned in the generous introduction, you know, my focus on cost benefit, my focus on cost benefit over the years, and it predates my time at the SEC, it goes back to my time as a law professor, is, is not so much trying from my vantage point to steer towards a particular result in a particular instance, while I may have my views on what the outcome ought to be, but it's about that decision-making process. It's about saying, all right, what are the ways in which things could go well? What are the ways in which things might not go so well? What are the intended consequences? What are the unintended consequences? How do we maximize our, our insight into that range of outcomes? And then how do we figure out what the right trade-offs are? And then how do we figure out what the rule to do? And then how do we actually translate that into, into rule text? and then figure out whether you got it right, whether you got it wrong, whether you can improve upon it or otherwise. So, so when you add that piece to it, I sit back and, and, and just think about the agenda and think, and think wow, <laughs> that's a lot to accomplish 
when you factor all of that in. And I think one of the challenges can sometimes be when, when there is such an active agenda or effort to get so much done, to what extent does that make it harder to get any single thing done simply because you're trying to move forward you know, on so many fronts? So I, I'm sure not only the chair, but others at the commission are, are thinking about all of that as they go from the list you mentioned and other things and then get down to the bottom line of, all right, now that it's decision time in terms of what we can do, what we can't do, how to prioritize, where to make changes, where not, that that's presumably front and center, particularly, you know, at this point where there's a lot, a lot that they are looking to try to accomplish. Yeah, I think that might explain the lag that we've seen with some of the rulemaking. You know, there have been calls to propose a rule or a proposal, a rule proposal that kind of sits in the comment period for a long time. And, and maybe it's just that that process that you've described that's preventing some of these rules that I think, you know, different segments of the market are, are eagerly anticipating, but haven't yet seen. And, and you know, that's in the ESG space and, and some others. I mean, it, do you think that's that's fair? Because I mean, I hear it from clients sometimes, like, when are we going to expect a final rule in this area? And I and I don't often have a great answer for that. You know, I think part of it is some version of, of what I described, just the, the mechanics of the process. And again, to go from philosophy, for lack of a better way to put it, to policy, to rule decision in terms of what you want, to actually then figuring out quite literally the words on the page, yeah. right? Somebody got to figure out what those words on the page are going to be. So that that's just not an easy thing to do. I, I think in addition, there has been not just so much that the SEC has advanced recently, but these are really big ticket items, mm -hmm. right? Many of these are not what one might consider to be a refinement of a particular rule that already exists. There are some rules not to, and I use the word refinement, not to suggest unimportant, but there are some where you have a well-developed regulatory construct and you're making this change or that change and, and it's more by way of refining or building out or making clearer or, 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 or dealing with a particular something that's manifested itself that warrants attention. There's those rulemakings and those matter and those are consequential. And that's the way the federal securities laws continue to, if you will, progress. But there's over the last year or two been some really just, as you said, big ticket items that I don't think one would put in the refinement category. I think they put in the perhaps more, more significant change category. And that necessarily takes more time for one, the reasons I mentioned, I think, but number two, and you see this reflected in the comment files, a great deal of interest and interest pulling in a lot of different directions, which then puts the onus on the commission, everyone at the commission to, to take that into account and then figure out, all right, in light of all of that, what's the, what's the right thing to do? Where's the right place to land? That is a lengthy process. I think for, for folks who don't follow the everyday ins and outs of the SEC or administrative agencies, generally, you might think of a year as a long time <laughs> to go from a proposal to a final rule. But as both of you know, and probably a lot of your listeners do, if you look at the archives of the SEC, a rule from proposal to adoption, I haven't done the analysis, but maybe on the shorter end, not the longer end, or you know, maybe somewhere in the middle, but, it, but a year for rule in rulemaking time is, is not a huge amount of, of time, particularly for something this complicated and quite frankly, this consequential. 
Yeah, Troy, just to push back a little bit on that, you know, I'm obviously as an accountant, I'm a huge proponent of cost benefit analyses, but is there a contemplation of what the cost might be to not issuing a rule soon enough, right? I understand these things take time and the phrase we constantly hear from the commission is wanting to get it right. But Kurt, to your point, there's clients out there going, I'm spending time, effort and money trying to guess which way the wind's blowing. Even if we don't make a perfect decision, maybe someone needs to make one now. You know, is there some contemplation about the length of time and, and how that might impact the market generally if a rule isn't issued? That's yeah, a really interesting question. Just to come to the word perfect, perfect is a pretty high, is a pretty high bar. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, um, just a hyperbole for, for the example of the question. Un, 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 understood. <laughs> you know, I do think that there is a consideration of, of time insofar as if you want to address something you think you need to address then you're going to be concerned about the length of time it takes to address it, right? That's just kind of a natural part of, of, how, you, of how you would approach it. The, the other side of that coin, of course, is, is if you adopt a rule and it really isn't set aside perfect, yep. isn't good, then what have you just done? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not only might you not have addressed the thing you want to address, but you may have not addressed the thing that you want to address and imposed a lot of cost. And worse than that, you may have generated a false sense of confidence that you did address the thing that in fact you didn't address. So by the time you you put all that together, I think the lesson is to your point, you know, not to take, you know, maybe five years would be a long time, right? Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm too speaking in hyperbolic terms. Mm -hmm. But if we're talking about from my my vantage point as a general proposition, if you're talking about a year and it may feel a little rushed or you know, a year and a half and you have much more confidence that you achieve the right outcome, then, you know, that six months may be, may be worth it in the fullness of time. There's another aspect, right? In some sense, that's what, what I was just saying also posit, or posits or implies a little bit of a false choice, mm -hmm. by which I mean, one, one approach in, 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 in all of this, particularly with something that's complicated, you know, whatever it is, complicated or particularly consequential, is to say, all right, well, let's do something that we think is responsive to the core of the concern, perhaps whatever the concern is, perhaps in a way that actually generates widespread consensus, move that forward more expeditiously, and then we can see how it actually plays itself out. And we can always come back and do more or, or do less. So instead of trying to propose and adopt something that you think closely approximates the end state, do something that you think is significant progress. Again, if you have consensus that may allow things to move forward more expeditiously, and then you always have the benefit of seeing how it plays itself out. A little bit of the retrospective review notion to, to learn from experience in addition to whatever your effort is to, to be kind of more prospective in terms of what you anticipate. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's really helpful perspective or context. I mean, I think a couple of things you've said really, really landed with me. One is this concept of refinement versus, you know, big ticket rulemaking or, or, and, and maybe people start saying refinement instead of modernizing. That was the, the word of the day there for a couple of years. We'll see if anybody picks up on it, but also this idea of maybe building consensus around incremental steps. I mean, I think we saw perhaps more of that when Jay Clayton was chair than we're seeing right now. And, and that could be contributing to what I think folks are perceiving as a long, drawn-out rulemaking process at the moment. Well, consensus is a good thing when you can achieve it. And and I think 
while incrementalism isn't always the right thing, and I guess it depends upon how big the increment is that you're moving forward, <laughs> you kind of get bogged down in, in, in even how you define the, the term incrementalism. But I think, I think those points of, of consensus with the realization that one can take further steps. Look, if you, if, you, if you take a look at the federal securities laws, take a step back, you know, so we got 1933 and, and, and on forward to now, th there are things that have been part of the federal securities laws since the inception that continue in one way or the other to be refined. So the federal securities laws, I mean, one of the things about the about the rulemaking process and, and administrative agencies is there is that ability to, in a, in a continual way, move things forward. It's not like you have one opportunity and so make the most of it. That's just not the essence, the being, the expectation when it comes to administrative agencies as a whole. And the SEC is no exception. So I do think that gives one a bit of flexibility to try to find those points of, of consensus, take a, take a step forward, see how things have played out and then evaluate again. And that can be a way to move things forward more expeditiously than might otherwise be the case. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've talked about how, how robust or how long the list is of, of potential rulemakings on the reg flex agenda, you know, notably absent from the list are any proposed rules relating to cryptocurrencies which you know, Chair Gensler and the staff often refer to as digital asset securities. We can you know, sort of pick your favorite term for, for purposes of today's discussion. I mean, we continue to hear calls from all corners for some kind of rulemaking or guidance in this space. We've, we've heard an awful lot of that just in the last couple of weeks. So I guess, you know, I wonder why do you think digital asset securities aren't on the agenda? And is there anything that the commission can accomplish in this space without a rulemaking. So, I think, though, though I'm always hesitant to to try to say what somebody else somebody else is thinking in, in terms of in terms of what's what what's top of their mind. But my my best assessment on on that is that Chair Gensler and others feel as though they have the authority to regulate in the digital asset space. And when you see what's been coming out of the SEC, they've been using that authority in many, many ways. And enforcement is certainly one of, if not the, the most apparent way in which they've been exercising the authority that they believe they currently have with the federal securities laws as they currently exist. And what, of course, is an important point from all of that is, is if it's a security and it's securities transactions, if it's a security and if it is security transactions, we can underscore the if there, there certainly are different views on that. But if something is security and, and, and there are security transactions, then, you know, you have the 33 Act that's implicated, the 34 Act that's implicated, the Advisors Act that's implicated, the Investment Company Act. That's, so you are in then the scope of the federal securities laws. And so therefore, the commission's view has been com comply. I mean, I think in a, in a nutshell, that's been the stance of that's that's been the stance of the SEC. So if one holds that view, then I think the explanation to your question would be, well, to security, securities transactions, we have rules, <laughs> regulations and statutes that already apply. Now, the question is, is, is you got to comply. So that, while that may sound a little simplistic, I do think that's a fair summary of the of stance of at least a majority at the commission at the moment. Now, are there things they can or should do? You know, let's, I think, set aside, as your question implicitly did, any questions of legislation for, for now and just in terms of talking about the SEC. Look, so 
boy, we could do an hour on on this, but I'm, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna uh, mention one. Not, you're inviting one. yourself back for the next episode, Troy. Thanks for all. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna mention two points. I think one I can't help myself but mentioning, <laughs> which is the what is it question, right? This is the is it a security? I'd underscored the you know the if point in what I was saying a moment ago. But the is it, is it, whatever it is, a security. I'll just say one of the things that I've found fascinating is, is set aside the, the details of the analysis is the fact that there's so much attention on Howie. And I say that as a securities regulation person and as somebody who was a professor of this stuff. I used to teach, I always taught Howie when I taught SecReg. And I always taught how we won because it's frankly one case that I think every student's going to remember, even if they have nothing to do with securities regulation going forward, because kind of how can you not <laughs> remember? Right. But but to be honest with you, I, I taught it almost out of a sense of obligation. Right? I didn't teach it because I thought anybody's practicing securities law is going to have to be you know, really, really knowledgeable about how we it's just kind of one of those things you teach at the beginning of the casebook, whatever, and it's fun and, you know, gets people alert to the fact that more than just stocks and bonds are potentially securities. Now, it, it may be the single most important Supreme Court case mm -hmm. for the last handful of years. And people who have otherwise not a whole lot of interest in the federal securities laws are talking about oranges and orange groves and Howie <laughs> and what constitute efforts of others and all this interesting stuff. So... So, you know, you mentioned at the, in, in the intro, the, the, the kind of wonky part. So when I hear about, about Howie, I, I get pretty, pretty wonky on the point. In terms of without resolving the what is it question, look, one of the things that I think really is a, the need for more, more focus and attention is whatever is a security insofar as digital assets are concerned. Right. So without figuring out right now what that universe is, whatever is a security in terms of digital assets is helping market participants understand the details of what it is that's required to comply. So much attention has been focused and understandably on essentially the jurisdictional question, right? How is the jurisdictional question? Does the SEC have jurisdiction? Does this thing and transaction involving this thing fall within the scope of the federal securities laws, yes or no? As to at least some, the answer it will, will continue to be yes, maybe yes to all. We'll see how that discussion plays itself out. But at least as to some, the answer will continue to be yes. So given that, all right, then what, what are the particularities when it comes to how you comply? And I do think there's room for the commission without legislation to do more by way of helping market participants who are trying to comply, understand when it comes to the details, what it takes to comply. So they're well positioned to then know what it is that's required of them. If they choose not to do it, then that's one thing. But I think a whole lot of folks would say, look, I may have views as to whether or not I should be subject to the SEC's jurisdiction. But if I am, and if that's the view of the commission, then what do I need to do? Give us that guidance so we can put ourselves yeah. in a position to comply. I think that's a separate question that I think warrants more attention and focus. And that really does get into the nitty gritty. It's not about is, is this regime good or that regime better or some other regime better still, but rather how do these actual requirements apply in the context of digital assets and the underlying technology? Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's a, that's a really good call out because it feels like this, you know, the staff or maybe the commissioners or maybe the chair are willing to operate under an assumption that, you know, at least some 
digital assets are securities, right? And maybe they have a short list or a long list. I don't know. Maybe it's just the ones that were in, in the Wahi case. That, that seems to be a good starting point for a lot of folks over there. But without the guidance on the how do you comply piece, I think you run the risk of, I mean, you certainly lack clarity, but you may also lack consistency in application for, you know, for folks who, who actually I think are trying to do the right thing. All right. Before we fall down a crypto rabbit hole, Kurt, as you and I have often done on this podcast, <laughs> you know, Troy, you've talked a bit about how disclosure is the cornerstone of the federal securities laws, while also cautioning against the SEC becoming overly prescriptive in those disclosure requirements. For example, at the SEC Speaks Conference of 2013, to throw some of your own words back at you again, you highlighted, quote, as a virtue of the tradition of disclosure regulation, that it does not prohibit issuers from raising capital just because the government is skeptical of an offering's merits, does not dictate corporate governance arrangements, does not require that companies be run in a certain way by mandating or banning particular activities, and does not contemplate that the government will pick winners and losers or bail out a firm that is failing because of its troubled business. In other words, as a regulatory mechanism, what disclosure does is promote investor choice, favor private ordering over one-size-fits-all directives, and encourage innovation and competition. End quote. We're opening up Pandora's box here because those comments, I think, lead to an interesting discussion in the ESG space. As we noted up top, there is a current rulemaking considering ESG at the proposed or final stage that relates to climate risk disclosures as well as human capital management disclosures and corporate board diversity disclosures, which are typically lumped in that ESG bucket. So we want to talk about those potential rules here. But first, a definitional question for you, Troy. There are differences of opinion about what ESG even means, right? We spoke a little bit about consensus. So how do you think about it and where do you draw those lines for ESG and maybe other things that are currently considered that but maybe shouldn't? Wow. You've got five um, seconds. Go. I give up, I think is, is <laughs> it's next. So I, I'm concerned that the phrase ESG has now, I'll say ha, ha, now ha, it's too burdened. Maybe that's the right way to put it. But, but, but what I mean by that is the following is, is I feel like the phrase, if it's a phrase or a word, ESG now too often, not always by any stretch, but too often, you're you're either characterized as, or or maybe self-described as, for or against. And part of the challenge with that is it is it is a differently defined, to your point, term. So people mean different things by it. In addition, there is so much that can be packed into it, and frankly, there is a lot of nuance around it that my worry is is that when it be, when it when it starts to become a bit of for or against it can make it difficult to have constructive discussions with respect to it whatever the it is yeah. <laughs> and and i think that can make it difficult to find points of consensus going back to something we were talking about before yeah and i think when you when it's hard to find, now look that's not to say everybody will agree on everything to to be to be sure but I do think that that there's probably points of agreement that may be being obscured because of the word and reactions one way or the other to the to the word or to or to the phrase. 
And so if we were to come up with, and I know others have been making similar kinds of, if we were to come up with a different phrase, a different word, or just not have that word do so much work, I think actually we may be able to find, again, more points of commonality around a lot of, a lot of this stuff. So in light of that, I think I will steer clear of trying to come up with a definitive definition for what is ESG, but, but get at it in a little different way, which is, or at least an aspect of it, which is the following. If you, if you think about, and, and I'll leave it to others to figure out how what I'm about to say fits into ESG or, or, or not, but if you think about, you know, how boards, officers, senior management, what have you, others think about running a business or maybe differently what they ought to be thinking about in many instances in terms of running, running a business, it would be, you know, questions like how do we drive value and how do we make the enterprise more valuable over a long duration, not just over the next, you know, moment. And when you start thinking about that longer term perspective, and one would, I think, hope that the marketplace has a recognition of the benefits of, of, of that kind of properly calibrated longer term perspective. Well, what are things you think about or would think about as a, as a board or a management team? Well, you certainly think about, you know, your financial performance. That's for sure. You think about your overall operational performance, but you think about your strategy. You think about your risks. You think about how you're going to make sure you comply so you don't get yourselves crosswise with folks you don't want to be crosswise with that could, that could constrain the business on a go-forward basis. You think about investing in your communities as a good citizen of the communities in which you, you, you operate. You think about taking care of your employees so they want to be with you for that longer duration. So they're motivated and they're committed to the effort. And so you have the right kind of culture and, and a whole host of different respects at the company. You, you think about investing in goods and services and products that people, that people want, that they're going to find valuable, that they're, that they're going to buy. You, you, you think about all of those sorts of things and other things as, as well. You think about your reputation, right? You think about having a diverse a workplace, which is diverse and inclusive of a range of different perspectives, looking for everybody who can contribute to making the business successful over the long term and all that that entails. Well, if, you, if you're doing all of that with the focus on trying to drive the value of the enterprise, mindful of a range of stakeholders and how tending to, to, to those interests can help drive the business on a, on a go forward basis for an extended period of time, resulting in better operational performance, better financial performance, perhaps probably a higher stock price over time. I, I don't know if one puts that or where one puts that or situates that in the ESG discussion, but if you were to do a little bit of a taxonomy there, I think you could check at least a number of those things and say, yeah, those seem like ESG type values or interest or considerations. And when you loop it back to like when I would teach corporate law, I would teach the business judgment rule, all that sort of stuff. And, and, and the seminal cases there allow room for the board and management to think about a range of considerations with the focus on how to drive the value of the enterprise over the long term. So I say all of that not to, I don't, I don't mean to kind of overstate or, or draw too tight of a nexus, but, but there's a lot there that I think actually has resonance with at least elements of ESG 
and I think can be at least a useful lens on, on the discussion. Well, Troy, we've asked you generally about crypto and you did not define what a digital asset security is. We've asked you generally about ESG. You did not define what ESG is either. So be careful. <laughs> We're going to make you define whatever we ask you third. But to step down right from some of those summary level and, and totally appreciate your comments, right? This is a moving target for a lot of reasons. It's still in development. But let's get into the details, right? The We've got a rule amendment regarding the enhancement of company disclosures around human capital management. In 2020, the commission approved amendments to Reg SK that required companies to describe those human capital resources. What are your thoughts on the rulemaking and, and what that would require or amend regarding human capital disclosure requirements? Yeah, there hasn't been a whole lot that's been said that at least I can recall. I mean, if, if I'm happy to have either of you tell me if I missed something, I, I may have. But, but there hasn't been a lot said by folks at the commission in terms of what to expect out of that particular rulemaking that, that is at some point on, on the horizon. I think they've indicated at some point, at some point this year. So hard to say just because they haven't said much, at least that I've, that I've picked up on. Look, I think that certainly DE&I, I think, will be a centerpiece of what the commission proposes. I don't know exactly the ways in which that will be part of what the commission proposes, but I think that will certainly be part of what the commission proposes. I think it will be interesting to see what, if anything, they do when it comes to not just the Reg SK, but the Reg SX, the financial statement aspects of this. I think if you consider the ways in which, you know, turnover, great resignation, remote working, those sorts of changes in the marketplace over the last few years with COVID and, and quite frankly, advances in technology, you know, how, how if at all, Will that be part of what the commission addresses? So I think those are among the kinds of things that you might you might see. I guess we're going to know at, at at some point. I think though what 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 I think will be important beyond you know the particulars of what may or may not be included will be interesting to see is the extent to which. Well, let me let me put it this way. The, the the federal securities laws have, and, and your quote from me kind of gets to it, the federal securities laws were, were designed, and the SEC were designed with a particular kind of core mission in mind, which is, yes, there are substantive aspects of the federal securities laws, particularly when you talk about, say, the 40 Act and, and, and what have you. But when you think about the core philosophy of the federal security, the core philosophy of the federal securities laws is to give the marketplace, to give investors, potential investors information so they can make informed decisions. And that then will bring market discipline to bear. That will also then determine the allocation of, of capital in more efficient and ultimately more productive ways. That's the basic animating philosophy if you were to reduce it to, to, its, to its essence. And I think, I think one of the critiques that's been offered of some of what the commission has been doing over the last couple of years has been that the agency is moving too far afield of that core mission and instead trying to drive more substantive outcomes. Right? That's been a critique we've heard made from, from, from various quarters. So I think one interesting question will be, where does the human capital management proposal line up, if you will, along, along those lines? Now, having said all that, I think there are probably folks who you may be listening who would agree with my characterization of the core philosophy of federal securities laws. I make that, though, quite frankly, not as a normative point. I make that as, I think, an analytic descriptive 
descriptive point in terms of what the federal securities laws and the SEC were designed to do. And then I think some folks think that, again, the federal securities laws and the SEC are perhaps you know, getting a little bit outside of that lane. And we'll see how that continues to play out. All right. So we want to, we actually want to pick up on another rulemaking that, that also falls into the broad ESG bucket. I'll put the last one, the human capital management, probably in the G bucket. But again, we're going to resist definitions here for, for purposes of this discussion. There was another proposal last year to change rules that would require registrants to include certain climate related disclosures in their registration statements and periodic reports. And that would include information about climate-related risks that are reasonably likely to have a material impact on an issuer's business, their results of operations, or their financial condition. This one has gotten a, a lot of press, certainly a lot of comment letters. A lot of them have to do with the extent to which a, a registrant may be required to make disclosures relating to its greenhouse gas emissions. But Troy, you know, when you're thinking about this proposal, I wonder what you think about how it was calibrated in terms of you know what what the market or investors might might actually want or need to know. Yeah, so one one way to think about the proposal is to go if you will item by item and try to evaluate is this item needed is this item not needed what would be the cost what would be the benefits what does this item actually mean when you try to translate it into try, complying with it and making whatever the attendant disclosures would be. So there's a, 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 a line by line way to evaluate the proposal. There's also a take us to back and just take the proposal as a whole. That's a different that's a different look at the proposal. As a whole, it is a very ambitious proposal. I, I, I think the supporters of the proposal would say, I think by design, <laughs> very ambitious. I think detractors would say overly ambitious. I think the comment letters that came in, and there were a lot of them, were quite interesting in a, in a, in a lot of ways, particularly insofar as I think there were some comments that came in who said, in so many words, I'm paraphrasing, yes, we think there should be more disclosure, but in the following ways, this goes past that point, even as the intended beneficiaries of what this proposal is designed to do. And the two areas where, where those comments featured were on scope three and the GHG stuff, as well as on the financial statement stuff, where, again, a number of commenters said, look, we appreciate <laughs> what you're trying to do here, but, but that went, went too far and, and could, be scaled, could be scaled back. So we'll see where they ultimately come out, particularly on scope three and on financial, the financial statement aspect of the proposal. One of the things that I think, and it applies in the context of this proposal, but more generally, one of the things that I think is really important when thinking about any sort of disclosure regulation is not just to look at the side of it, which is, all right, the, the, the disclosure side, but also look at the use side, the ways in which the information is going to be used. And I say that perhaps because a lot of my academic work was centered around that very question, the ways in which investors actually use the information that's provided to them. And there are comp uh, complexities and nuances to that. But in particular, when, when there is information, setting aside the, the materiality question and the avalanche of information, TSC, Northway discussion, but, but when, when the disclosure 
or the disclosures are have a high degree of uncertainty associated with them, which is something that the commission itself recognizes in, in the proposal, that some of the disclosures, there is a lot of uncertainty associated with them, that they require a lot of assumptions to be made, that they require a lot of textualizing to be done. One of the questions that I think that poses is, what does that mean in terms of the usability of that information? Will it create misimpressions for investors, yes or no? And if yes, how do you how do you address that? So I think it becomes quite interesting beyond what the burden may be and the cost and the expense, which a lot of commenters commented on, but just thinking about which of the disclosures are really going to promote and advance uh, investor decision-making versus which, notwithstanding intentions, might actually spur confusion and create misimpressions. I think that's always a tough question when you're trying to think about the effectiveness of a, of a, of a new set of mandatory disclosures. All right. So we, we've spent a lot of time talking about rulemaking and policy. And while we've got you, we want to pivot and talk a little bit about enforcement, which is, you know, of course, another one of my favorite topics. I know it's something that you've spoken about quite a lot. Again, looking back at some of your your speeches and public remarks, it is something that that you've come to time and again. And, you know, there was one one speech in particular in 2010, you gave remarks at the SEC's International Institute, Institute for Securities Enforcement and Market Oversight, where you talked a little bit about, I guess, your enforcement philosophy, philosophy, but in a sense, the role of the commission in making enforcement decisions. And just to kind of paraphrase, you, you said, look, we, we have limited resources. So as regulators, we need to make choices about what cases we're going to pursue and what is the optimal mix of cases. As I'm sure you know, SEC enforcement has been pretty busy in the last couple of years. <laughs> and the cases are, are really covering the waterfront, I think, in terms of like the topics that they're, that they're really getting at. And all we seem to hear is that there's going to be kind of more, more, more. So I, I wonder if you have a view on the current mix of cases. Is it Are they focusing in the areas you would, or is it giving a, a message to the market that you think is an appropriate one? You may not like this answer either, since by giving my unwillingness to define terms. So <laughs> I'm just going to get ahead of the critique. It's, it, it's, it's difficult, honestly, because I don't know what the full set of options are they have on their plate in terms of where they could spend their resources. So that's that's a vantage point I, I wouldn't have had had I not spent time with the commission, which is, you know, I, I realize there's a lot that I don't know that they know, right? That that's that's about the totality of whatever they are investigating or could investigate. That's also even when it comes to particular settlements or complaints for that matter. Right. I mean, just like with the with the two of you, if I read a settlement, I know what the settlement says, but I don't know any. That's all. Right. And so I'm always a little reluctant to what well, one does glean and one should glean. I'm always a little reluctant to glean too much because I, I realize that I'm not I, there's a lot that I don't that I don't that I don't know that could sway me one way or or the other. Having said that part, <laughs> what <laughs> what I will say is as a general matter, and I do think there's a lot of consensus on, on this point, as a general matter, everything else being the same, I, look, I think the commission should be focused on those areas and those violations where there has been actual investor harm and where there has been, you know, let's call it center-based violations, fraud manipulation. I think that that should be a priority. And I think most folks would agree that that should be a priority. Mm -hmm. And I think probably for self-evident reasons. 
Now, I, I, by saying that, I don't mean to say that that's the only thing you you do. The federal securities laws cover a lot of stuff. The SEC's rules and regs cover a lot of stuff. They're really important. People need to comply without question. But if one had to just pick with that marginal resource, you know, kind of what do you what do you do? One of the things that I think is is a challenge is you know th- trying to protect against negligence-based offenses morphing de facto into strict liability offenses. And so I think there's a really interesting discussion to be had. I don't think we have time. <laughs> there's a really interesting discussion to be had around how to think about negligence-based offenses or, or reasonableness in the context of the federal securities laws, whether we're talking about statutes or rules and regulations. And when I think about that, which I think is a fascinating topic, you know, I start thinking about like basic principles of torts. I'm not trying to draw a, a one-to-one, but if you kind of think about torts, a lot of which is around these sorts of questions, I think it's really interesting to think about what insights that offers in terms of how to think about what constitutes negligence or lack of, you know, taking reasonable steps in the context of the federal securities laws. And again, my general, my general concern there is, is just trying to make sure that those kinds of offenses don't end up in practice becoming tantamount to strict liability. In, I know, Troy, we've been giving you a little bit of grief about avoiding definitions, but I want to give you some credit. In those remarks that Kurt just referenced, I will say that it is my current top seed as the smoothest introduction and discussion of the disclaimer of an SEC commissioner I've ever heard. So great job on not just kind of giggling up front like some <laughs> folks do and, and disclaiming your comments. Very professional, very smooth, loved it. But one of the other parts about those remarks that stuck with me is about, you know, comments about the SEC's actions being a deterrent effect, mm-hmm. right? And speaking not only to the violation of the conduct, but the message that the SEC is sending. To quote you quickly here, law enforcement is intended in part to make illegal conduct an unattractive option. Law enforcement discourages individuals from engaging in illicit behavior when the expected sanction for a violation is such that compliance is the wiser course. This is something that we've heard a lot since enforcement Gerber Grewal took over about 18 months ago. Interested in your take on how successful the commission is being in deterring misconduct with their current posture. Boy, you guys are going to continue to have me saying, I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> The hot takes, Troy, the hot takes. Yeah, these are hot takes, I suppose. I'm going to give another little bit of an I don't know, only in in the sense that, right, deterrence, in order to really really evaluate the degree of deterrence, I'd have to know what would the behavior be but for that enforcement action holding everything else constant, right? And and I say that not to be glib, and I say that not to try to... Not to try to evade the question, but but I say that because I think that's an important an important point. In that, sometimes I think we 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 myself included that 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 quote you read talk about deterrence, and we should talk about deterrence without question. How do you measure deterrence? That's a whole separate thing. And by the way, there's a, there's another question, which is what's the optimal degree of deterrence? Not to be too provocative on the point. But these are really interesting questions that are that are factual that are factual questions because I need to know what the alternative behavior would be, but for and we just never we just never know that. So, so again, a bit of kind of caution or tentativeness on on my part because the honest answer is is I don't know because I don't know the answer to those to those other questions. Having said that, look when the commission brings enforcement actions, as 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 you both know and and your colleagues know, people pay a ton of attention, not just those against whom the enforcement action was brought. 
and, and lawyers and others go back and talk to clients and potential clients and write memos and give advice in order to try to help the folks they're working with avoid whatever it was that got whomever into trouble with the SEC or some other, or some other regulator. So from that perspective, there is a big impact from enforcement actions. And I guess to put the label on it, you would talk about it in terms of general deterrence, not just specific, specific deterrence. But exactly how much and 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 what would be the alternative, you know, what would be the but for, that's hard to say, but people do pay an incredible amount of attention to enforcement actions and other pronouncements coming out of out of the agency without question. Well, Troy, obviously, you know, we could spend hours and hours on each of these topics individually, but we're also interested now that you're kind of in a position outside of the commission. What are you looking for on the horizon, right? You're you're podcasting, right? You're writing a lot about that intersection between technology and financial markets. Where do you see the next action happening or the next issue arising? Yeah, so I, I do think that that intersection of finance and technology, and in particular, the intersection of federal securities laws and technology is really, really consequential and really, really interesting. So maybe to, as you said, end on a look forward note, and this is a look forward, I don't know, a 10-year look forward, uh, maybe it's a five-year, maybe 20-year, but th- there, are, there are, I think, are three really important, I'll call it profound, particularly when combined developments over the last few years that I think have a direct bearing on how we think about the federal securities laws, in particular, what makes for an effective mandatory disclosure regime. One of those is, is just how much information people have access to, right? Obvious point, but it's enormous. Just think about it compared to 1933, right? And how so much of that information is outside of SEC filings that people have access to and access to kind of on a moment by moment basis. So the dramatic increase in information, plus the dramatic change with technology, AI, et cetera, to process that information, profound. And then number three, dramatic change in how people access and share information, mobile devices, social media. If you think about each one of those separately, let alone collectively, and say, all right, are there implications for a federal securities law regulatory regime premised on mandatory disclosure of information? The answer has to be yes. Now, all the ways in which it's gonna impact or should impact, I think, as you said, we're gonna have to get into that maybe some other, some other time. But I think it is, a, it, is, it is an incredibly profound set of developments that should have an impact in terms of the shape and the future of the federal securities laws, in particular, insofar as the mandatory disclosure regime is concerned. And so that's something that I certainly hope to have the chance to not only think a lot more about, but uh, maybe we'll have the chance to talk more, to talk more about that. Yeah, we'd love to. We definitely have to have you back at some point, Troy. We've we've only scratched the surface on a number of topics, and I know there were a couple others we we thought about discussing on the podcast today, but we've run out of time. So we'd love to have you back if you ever want to come. But thank you so much for making the time today. I know I've really enjoyed it. Awesome. Really appreciate it, guys. And for those of you looking for more from Troy, remember he is the co-host of the Appetite for Disruption podcast alongside his co-host, Lee Schneider. So check that out uh, wherever you listen to podcasts, obviously wherever you're listening to us right now. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guest, Troy Paredes of Paredes Strategies. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. 
You can find me at Ekimoff CPA. And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.